0: Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippian church. If you have one of those red Bibles, it's on page 154 of the New Testament, which is toward the back of the Bible. Last week, we introduced this letter by walking through the overall theme of the letter, which is rejoice. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And undertones of that theme are certainly found even in the introduction of this letter as he prepares the church to receive uh, the Word of God. And so as we begin this morning, I want to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, the introduction of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Follow along as I read. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, it's been over three years since Paul saw the Philippians face to face. The last time he had stepped foot in Philippi was when he was traveling back to Jerusalem, where he ended up getting arrested and spending two years in prison in Caesarea, at which point he appealed to Caesar. He was transferred to Rome. He spent a, about a year in Rome before he heard from the Philippian church through Epaphroditus, who carried the support from the church along with news of what was going on. And so He writes this letter somewhere around a year into his two-year imprisonment in Rome. In those intervening years, since the last time that he had been in Philippi, trouble began to stir in the church of Philippi. Some of it may be related to the kinds of trouble that were occurring often in many churches during that time where Jews were trying to convince Christians that they needed to be circumcised in order to be right with God. Some of the trouble may have related to pagan influence. Philippi was primarily a pagan city, and so there would have been significant influence through the unbelievers. There may also have been conflict within the church about how are we to do ministry as we move forward as a church. We, We don't really know what the troubles are, but we get hints of them throughout the letter. Whatever the troubles are, the church still, thankfully, trusts Paul and they are ready to be influenced and receive his instructions on how they are to handle this situation that they're going through. Paul presents himself here not as an apostle, as he sometimes does, but rather as a ministry partner, as an affectionate friend. He conveys to them that he, he loves them, and he desires to see God's good work continue in their lives. He, he speaks with gentleness and hopeful expectation, while admonishing them to pursue unity with one another and a heightened devotion to Christ. But before he does that throughout the letter, he starts in this prelude to set the tone of the letter by striking four encouraging notes to remind them of his love for them. The, The themes of this song, if you will, these four notes are these unity, gratitude, Confidence and affection. Unity, gratitude, confidence, and affection. With, these, with this encouraging introduction to the letter, Paul not only prepares the believers in Philippi for what they're about to hear in the rest of the letter, but the Spirit who inspired Paul intends for us to learn the kinds of thoughts we should cultivate about one another letter is for us as well. In striking the note of unity, Paul emphasizes the the unity that they have in Christ, and that this letter is for everyone in the church, not just for some of them. It's for the leaders, it's for the people, and it's for everyone on every side of whatever conflict or disagreement that exists in the church. In striking the note of gratitude, Paul reveals to them that What wells up inside of him when he remembers them is gratitude, and he prays for them. Above all else, Paul is thankful for every person in the church and prays for them joyfully because of their partnership in the gospel. In striking the note of confidence, Paul encourages them with his own positive outlook for their future. He's confident in the good work. And, and sanctification that God has already begun in them and that it has not come to an end, but rather it is ongoing and will come to completion at the day of Christ. And then finally, in striking the note of affection, Paul conveys his own disposition toward them, that they are knit on his heart, and he feels a longing for them that reflects the, the affection of Christ. And so in starting this way, Paul ensures that his readers know for sure that he is not angry with them, he's not frustrated by them, he's not even annoyed by them. As he sits in prison, he's not bothered by the fact that he has to write this letter to the church. Rather, for Paul, this opportunity to write the letter really lifts up his own soul and strengthens him to persevere with the expectation that he will see them again. Now for us, as we walk through this introduction, this, this is a, a model for how we should think about one another. Paul says in verse 7, for it is only right for me to think this way about you all. And we're going to be challenged today in how we think about one another, especially those with whom we are at odds. So let's begin at looking at the first note, unity. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Paul is the singular author here throughout the letter. He only uses the first person singular, never the first person plural. He never says we. He always says I. And yet he includes Timothy. It's possible that Timothy is what's often called the amanuensis, the one who is writing down the letter as Paul is dictating it. But that really wouldn't be a reason for Paul to include Timothy as one of the senders of the letter. And so whether or not Timothy actually wrote the letter physically, a more significant reason that Paul included Timothy is because of Timothy's relationship with the Philippians. As we saw last week in Acts 16, Paul uh, Paul's initial, uh, excuse me, Acts 16 details Paul's initial ministry in Philippi, but Paul was not a, a lone ranger. He didn't travel by himself. In fact, in verse one of Acts 16, we learn of Paul's uh, meeting uh, of Timothy, and because of Timothy's reputation uh, there at the church of Lystra, where he met Timothy, and also a nearby church, Iconium, which knew about Timothy, Paul decided to take Timothy on as a disciple and make him part of his ministry team. Timothy's initial ministry experiences with Paul as they traveled around was to go around to the cities that already had churches, where Paul was delivering the decree from the Jerusalem church about how much of the Mosaic law the Gentiles needed to follow. But after that particular mission, the Spirit sharply redirected Paul and his team such that they found themselves in Philippi. And it was there in Philippi that Timothy... Had his first experience of planting a church. And if you know anything about firsts, they tend to be memorable. You know, your first car, your first job, your first relationship, your first home. And so it was that for Timothy, this church planting experience was not only memorable, but he left his heart in Philippi. We know this because Paul says in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, where Paul says, "...but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his, Timothy's, proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father." Since Paul plans to send Timothy to them, he wants the church to know that everything that he is about to write, Timothy is united in heart with Paul. So it's that when Paul, or excuse me, when Timothy arrives in the church, there's not going to be any daylight between what Paul writes and what Timothy is trying to accomplish among them. Well, not only do Paul and Timothy share the same heart for for the Philippians, but they also have the same. Credential, and we see that here in verse 1, they are both slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ. Never in Paul's letters do you find himself presenting and asserting his own authority by virtue of who he is in and of himself and his accomplishments. He's, he always and only presents himself as one who serves on the basis of the grace and mercy that he has received from Jesus For both Paul and Timothy, they served exclusively as representatives of Jesus, who is the head of the church. You know, unlike King Saul, the first king of Israel, Paul and Timothy never forgot who entrusted the stewardship of leadership to them. To the very end of their lives, they served the interests and purposes of Jesus. Well, that's who sent the letter. Look at who received the letter there in the second half of verse 1, where it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. This is one of those statements that would be easy to pass by, right? As you're reading through the Scripture, as you're reading Philippians or any other letter, these are the statements that you skim over because they don't seem all that important. But this statement is intentionally crafted to emphasize the unity of all believers, and especially all the believers in the church at Philippi. Notice again how he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then including the overseers and deacons. Why is that important? Well, again, there's some degree of disunity and disagreement in the church. We don't know the issues involved. We don't know the people involved, or at least not all of them. But he says in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then he says in chapter four, verse two, I urge Yodia and I urge urge to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's issues going on, and it's likely that Paul himself has all the details. I'm sure Epaphroditus told him everything that, that he could. But instead of adjudicating the issues and Paul telling everybody what he thinks they should do, he calls on the church to address these issues and to pursue unity among themselves. And so he begins the letter by making it explicit that every person in the church needs to pay close attention to this letter. Yes, even the elders and the deacons. Now we know that when there's trouble... When we think we're in the right and we hear someone preach a message that is relevant, we're often finding ourselves thinking, I sure hope so and so is listening to this. (laughs) Paul knows about human nature and he wants the entire church, every person, to sit up and pay attention. Some of you may have come from church traditions where certain leaders will sit up on the platform the whole time. I'm not speaking about anybody else, but just knowing my own heart. If, if that were our tradition, and I'm grateful it's not, but if that were our tradition, I could see myself developing an attitude that if, if I'm sitting there while someone else is proclaiming the message facing the other direction, I would start to think, this message is not for me. This is for everybody else. Well, even if we don't have that tradition, we can sometimes as leaders, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, We can develop this mindset that I'm mature. I've been a Christian this many years. I have this position. I have this training. I don't need to be listening to the week after week preaching of God's Word. We can elevate ourselves beyond what we should, and we end up stop listening to the Word of God. Well, Paul doesn't excuse the leaders from listening to this letter. If you're a leader... In this church, as an elder, as a deacon, as a ministry leader, the truths of this letter are for you and me as well. Why? Why is that important that we understand this? It's because each one of us and every one of us together are in Christ Jesus. Did you see that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. All those who have been saved by Christ are bound together equally, no matter your age, your sex, your station in life, your maturity level, your occupation, your ethnicity, or any other reason. All those distinctions fall away as we come together at the foot of the cross. There is not one true Christian who is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is not one believer who has not been crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. Each follower of Christ is seated at the right hand of Christ in the heavenly places as a co-heir with Christ. Every single true believer in Christ is a son or a daughter of the Father. But specifically here, Paul emphasizes that all of us as members of the church are saints. Did you see that? We're saints. Did you know that you are a saint? Don't try and go get a name or church named after you, but you are a saint. Thanks to the global influence of the Roman Catholic Church, we have a hard time thinking of ourselves as saints, don't we? After all, we're far too familiar with our sin. And we know for sure we have not performed any miracles. So can you and I really be saints? Yes, yes we can. Sainthood, listen, is not a status that requires qualifications. It's not an achievement or an accomplishment. And listen to this, it's not even a title that God gives to you. Sainthood is what God does to you. Sainthood is what God does to you. The word saint means to be holy. And though holiness can certainly refer to, to purity, being free from sin as we often use it, the essential meaning of holy is to be set apart. To be set apart. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In other words, we were, we were born into the domain of darkness. We were birthed into the world as those who are hostile to God. And we love the darkness rather than the light. He puts it this way in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked in the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That was was how we live. That's how we were born. That was our nature as we were born into this world. But God made us alive. He adopted us into his family. And he made us citizens of his kingdom. He separated us separated us from sin and darkness and brought us near to himself. And so salvation is not just the removal of sin in terms of forgiveness, as critical as that is. Salvation includes the transfer of our soul from one kingdom to another. And so whereas before we were separated from and hostile to God, now we are separated from and hostile to our sin. Before we relished in the darkness, now we relish in the light. Before we were dead to God and alive to sin, and now we are alive to God and dead to sin. In the language of Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I just want to take a moment and ask if there was anyone here who has not been delivered from their sin, who is still dwelling in darkness, I want to urge you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need the blood of Christ to forgive you of your sin so that you can be right with God. And you can do that today. Well, this is true of every member of the church in Philippi, that we are saints. And it's true of every member here at Ho Bible Church who has put their faith in Christ. We have a fundamental unity with one another because our, of our union with Christ. And therefore, we stand together in the kingdom of Christ, having been separated from sin and darkness. That is what it means to be a saint. And this essential and unbreakable unity must be the foundation of how we relate with one another and how we serve the Lord together. And so with this existing unity in Christ, Paul greets them in verse 2 by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ but Paul opens the letter, every letter in the New Testament with a greeting like this. We should not think of this as a mindless expression. Paul does not invoke two members of the Trinity flippantly. This is a genuine expression conveying to them his desire to, for them to receive and experience God's endless flow of grace and God's transcendent peace in their life. in a very real way. The, the God the grace of God the Father, and the Son are experienced by them as they receive this letter as the Word of God to them. And then peace also will be experienced by them as they take the truth and live it out in their lives as well. Paul said in chapter 4, verse 9, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Unity is a sweet sound, is it not? Both in music and in life, unity is something that we can rejoice in. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Well, having looked at unity, let's consider the second note, which is gratitude. Gratitude. Look at verses 3 to 6. Paul says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation of the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice here whom Paul thanks. He doesn't thank the Philippians. He thanks God. And even though he thanks God for the Philippians' participation in the gospel, he quickly follows up by affirming that that work itself is what God has worked in them. And so we find here a lesson of how to give God glorifying encouragement. Thanksgiving and encouragement are best given in a God-centered way. In a helpful book called Practicing Affirmation, which I would commend to you, Practicing Affirmation, Sam Crabtree writes, Good affirmations are God-centered, pointing to the image of God in a person. The only commendable attributes and people were given to them. Everything is from God, through God, and to God, so that in all things, including the commendable qualities in people, he might get the glory. And so when Paul thinks of the Philippians, he thinks about what God has done in them, and he celebrates that. He remembers the early days in the church when he first proclaimed the gospel to those women at the river. And they were Gentiles getting saved out of paganism and Jews as well, getting saved out of their Judaism. In his subsequent visits, he saw with his own eyes the, the maturity and the growth that the believers were experiencing and how they sacrificially supported his ministry. He witnessed the transformation that the Lord was working in their lives and he gives thanks whenever he remembers them. And when he remembers them, he says, he prays for them with joy. Whenever he thinks about them, he experiences that delight in his heart because he sees them the way that God sees them. He views the Philippians through the lens of truth. And he sees them as saints, as brothers and sisters in Christ and ministry partners. And he rejoices at their generosity, knowing that it comes from a heart shaped by the Spirit Of God, In particular, he says that he is thankful in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The first day that Paul refers to there is the first day of his time in Philippi. Again, in Acts 16, we learn that Lydia, the first convert in Philippi, who seemed to have some wealth, hosted the church in her home. The Philippian jailer who got saved several weeks or months into the ministry there, cared for Paul and Silas' medical needs after they were mistreated and put in prison. And then when Paul and his ministry team left Philippi because of opposition, Acts 17 says they went to Thessalonica, where the Philippian church followed after with financial support multiple times. We see that in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me, in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul remembers all of these things about them, and he has gratitude that fills his heart. Now there's a lesson here for us. One of our natural tendencies, when we are at odds with others, or we observe, or we hear about someone who seems to be causing trouble, we tend to forget all of the evidences of grace in their lives. We, we can go from thinking the best about someone to thinking the worst about them in a moment. And what we learn from Paul here is that no matter what we know or what we think about a brother or sister in Christ, we should call to mind the good things that God has done in their lives. We should balance whatever concerns we have with recollections of their faithfulness and we should give thanks to God for those things. And just imagine how we would approach conflicts and disagreements differently if we came together with hearts full of thanks for one another rather than coming together as adversaries. Well, right on the heels of gratitude, Paul is quick to sound off his confidence. Look again at verse 6. He says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you have a New American Standard, you see that the for I am is in italics, which means it's not in the original. In the Greek, verse 6 is actually connected to verse 3 as another reason that Paul is thankful to the Lord. Namely, he he is thankful that God's initial work of salvation and his Progressive work of sanctification, which he has already experienced, is ongoing and will continue until that final day when it is complete at the day of Christ. As Paul thinks about the Philippians and the issues going on in the church, he he doesn't just look back at the past, at the good old days when things were going well. He doesn't myopically look at where they are today and the issues that are going on. He extends his gaze toward the future. Recognizing that we will all find ourselves, all true believers, at that finish line where we will be glorified and be with Christ forever and ever. This is the doctrine both of progressive sanctification and glorification. Progressive sanctification is that work of God where he continually molds the believer into the image of Jesus Christ. Remember these familiar words from Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be preeminent among many brethren. Here's the point. Everything that happens in your life, good or perceivably bad, is a tool in God's hand for your good, especially suffering and difficulty. We can exalt in our tribulations, Paul says in Romans 5, 3, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. But trials aren't the only way that God works His conformity to Christ in us. As we receive the pure milk of the Word, through sermons, through Bible studies, through classes, through discipleship, through personal reading. As we grow in our knowledge of Christ and behold Him more and more, 2 Corinthians 2.18 says we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, and if you are a believer in Christ, and He is committed to to the good work of transforming you into the image of Christ so that you become increasingly characterized by the fruit of the Spirit and reflect the character of Christ. That's progressive sanctification. But the hard reality is none of us will see that we're completed in this life. No one ever reaches complete conformity to Christ where they no longer sin at all. In this body, as long as we live in these sin-cursed bodies and as long as the principle of sin resides in us, we will be a work in progress. But there will come a day when that work will be done. If the Lord tarries, the initial stage of that work will be done when we die and come face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And He has not appeared yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And then when the Lord comes to establish His thousand-year reign on this earth, not only will our souls be conformed to the image of Christ, we will also receive glorified bodies fit for eternity. Look over at the end of chapter 3 where Paul says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Well, what will this body look like? What will it be like? Well, you can turn, you can keep your finger here, turn over to First Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul talks about the resurrection. And I just want to read the lengthy section where he addresses that very question. Starting in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So have you ever had that question? What will my body be like when I, when I get to heaven and when, when I dwell in eternity? Well, here's the answer. You fool! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That which you sow does not come to life until it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of his own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. The star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood, excuse me, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must also put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. I'll stop there. So you get the idea. Our earthly body is a body that is fit for this earth. Our heavenly body, our glorified body, is a body that will be fit for heaven. And just like the body of Jesus after his resurrection, your resurrection body will bear similarities, strong similarities to your current body, just without the effects of the curse of sin. So that means there will be no principle of sin in your resurrected body. You will not be subject to decay, to hunger, and to thirst. We'll be able to eat, and we will. After all, how can you have Chick-fil-A in heaven if you can't eat? But we, but we don't need to eat to avoid starvation. I mean, get this. We, we won't have uh, any struggle with diabetes. We won't have any struggle with heart disease or acid reflux or migraines or wandering eyes or genetic disorders of any kind. While still being finite... Our bodies will not hinder us in any way from serving the Lord for all eternity. And this is guaranteed for the believer. God's ongoing work will come to completion at the day of Christ. And this is certain for every Christian, including those with whom you may be at odds. It's easy to embrace this for ourselves. We feel our aches and pains. We know what the doctors told us about ourselves. And we're like, Lord, give me a body fit for heaven. But sometimes, if we're honest, it's challenging to remember this, both progressive sanctification and glorification about others. Many times we can be reluctant to acknowledge the growth and change in other people especially when someone has wronged us continually over a long period of time it can be difficult to to observe and to recognize and acknowledge changes in attitudes in character in perspectives in behavior well without being naive we should what we ought to do is have confidence in God's ongoing work in the lives of other believers we should as 1 Corinthians 13:7 says hope all things We should be expectantly looking for evidences of grace in the work of others. We shouldn't be looking for what we expect the Spirit to be doing. We should be looking for, is there anything that the Spirit is doing? Is He bringing conviction? Is He bringing transformation? Is there anything that I can praise God for growth in the other person? Paul expresses that kind of confidence to the Philippians That God is at work in them, and He will continue that work for their good and God's glory. And so may we adopt that same attitude toward one another. Well, we see here in this introduction, the the notes of unity, gratitude, confidence, and finally, let's round off this four-note chord with affection. Affection. Look again at verses 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here Paul defends his deep affection for this beloved church. He says it's only right, which is to say that his disposition toward them is a righteous conclusion. It's a just conclusion. He's not looking at them with rose-colored glasses. His perception of them is not based on emotional blindness. Rather, his affection for them is based on objective reality. Now, we need to make one correction in the text. What's translated here in in the infinitive as to feel in most translations. It's right for me to feel this way. Really, the word is to think, for now, to think. So he's saying, it's right for me to think this way about you. You know, Paul is an emotional man. Sometimes we we think he's so doctrinal and theological, but he is emotional. But he's not a man given over to his emotions. He understands, as we noted last week, that emotions are in part based on how we think. And translators are naturally, I think, just reflecting the emotional Nature of what Paul is saying here, but we should not be too quick to, to move from our thinking to our feeling. You know, very often we say things like, I feel like what you're saying is, or I feel like what's going on here is, or some other variation where we replace the word to feel, or excuse me, we, we replace the word think with the word feel. But when we talk that way, we're getting away from what is actually going on. We're, we're not actually feeling these things. We're thinking these things. And there is a significant and meaningful difference between those two. In fact, the more we confuse our feelings with our thinking, the more we are conformed to our culture with its emphasis on feelings over and against thinking and rational discourse. Of course, we should always be considerate and speak the truth in love. But we need to be careful not to imbibe the culture's worldview that feelings are what's most important. Paul, for his part, doesn't feel this way about the Philippians. He thinks this way about them. He knows that God is at work in them. He is convinced of it. And the reason that Paul is persuaded that God is at work and will continue that work in them is because of the church's longstanding partnership with him and how that has knit them to his heart. As we've said, this was not a brief uh, relationship where Paul went in town and left town and they never had other interaction. This has been a roughly 10-year relationship where Paul visited them at least two more times in the subsequent years after the initial planting of the church. They had correspondence through then. Paul sent others to, to care for them along the way. In fact, listen to how Paul brags on the Philippian church and other churches in Macedonia, when he's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, Now brethren, we we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Based on what we read in chapter 4, where the Philippian church was the only one that supported Paul personally, it seems as though the Philippian church was the chief giver and the chief supporter of not only Paul, but also all the saints, And so for Paul, the generosity of this church cemented his affection for them, not because he loved their money, but because he knew that their generosity was a reflection of the work of God in their heart. Now what does Paul mean here when he says in verse 7 that they are partakers of grace with him? He simply means this, that even though they themselves were not traveling with him while he defended the faith, And even though they were not sitting in prison with him, they were equal partners in his ministry. In every way, they were equal servants of the Lord, serving in the ministry of the grace of God. They were just as much a part of his ministry team as was Timothy and the others who traveled with Paul. And for that reason, because there was such close fellowship, Paul longed to be with them in person, and his affection for them was deep. In fact, in verse 8, when Paul says that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus, that word affection refers to the, the viscera, the internal organs where we often feel our emotions. That's interesting. There's no biblical record of this term being used in association with Jesus. So let's just take a moment to think carefully about what does Paul mean by the affection of Christ Jesus? What, what is Paul feeling for the Philippians that is a reflection of the affection of Christ Jesus? Well, Richard Sibbes, a Puritan pastor, wrote this. When Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace, he says, and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. Whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. He did it inwardly from his very bowels. Or as Dane Orland put it in Gentle and Lowly, Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. In other words, when Jesus extends mercy and grace to his people, he doesn't do it like an employer handing out paychecks out of obligation. No, he does it because grace and mercy are the outflow of the affection that Jesus has for sinners and for sufferers. We see an example of the heart of God in Jeremiah 31, where the Lord promises to restore the nation of Israel to a right relationship with Him. After all of their sin and their idolatry, their immorality and rebellion, century after century, God would have been right to judge the nation and wipe them off the earth as He did with others. Israel has profaned the name of the Lord and made a mockery of Him among the nations. In those days, if a nation was conquered by other nations, the, the perspective was that they must not have, a, have had a strong enough God who could protect them and preserve them. And so even though the judgment, the, the exile, the destruction of, of Jerusalem, the ending of the nation as, a, as an independent nation, even though that was all God's judgment on Israel, it looked to the world like their God was weak. And so despite everything that Israel did, the Lord says this about Israel in Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. Now that phrase, my heart yearns for him, literally means my intestines are in turmoil for him. It's an idiomatic way of referring to the Lord's deep affection for Israel out of which his mercy flows. Well, because Jesus is God, he had that same yearning heart, that same deep affection for people, especially those who were destitute. You know, the Gospels often say that Jesus was moved with compassion or that He felt compassion. Unlike us, the affection of Jesus is not based on how good we are. Unlike us, the affection of Jesus is not based on whether or not we reciprocate affection back to Him. More than anything, the affection of Jesus is based on our desperate need for his grace because of our sin and our suffering. I believe that's the affection of Jesus Christ that Paul is reflecting here. He's not affection toward affectionate toward the Philippian church because there's just this wonderful church perfect in every way. Rather, there are problems, there are disagreements. There is disunity, and that it is that situation that increases Paul's affection and longing for them. Oh, that we would have that kind of affection for one another. An affection not explained by how well we get along, but based on our need to do the hard work of moving toward each other when we are at odds. Imagine how quickly marriage problems would get solved if, Husband and wife came together with this Christ-like affection and longing for one another. Imagine how we would address disagreements among ourselves differently if our heart was compelled to move toward one another instead of away from one another. While in striking this note of affection, Paul prepares the Philippians to receive the loving admonishments that are to come he's really laid his heart bare before them proverbs 25:11 says like apples of gold in settings of silver a, is a word spoken in right circumstances in other words how you say something can make it precious and delightful and so with these notes of unity and gratitude and confidence and affection, Paul has set the tone for everything else he's going to write in the letter. You know, sometimes we have to have hard conversations. Sometimes we have to bring confrontation. Sometimes we just need to ask questions about a difficult subject with someone. We find here in this introduction a model for how we can initiate such conversations by affirming our love and our gratitude for one one another, we're reminded of the fundamental unity we have as believers, and we're called to be hopeful about God's ongoing work in the lives of others. If you haven't recently, I would encourage you to read Philippians this week. It'll just take you about 15 minutes. And have in your mind both the theme, Rejoice, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and these four notes as you read through the letter. In fact, I would encourage you to consider throughout our study, which will, Lord willing, take about six months, to read Philippians once a week and keep rehearsing these truths to yourself as the Spirit works in your heart. And I am persuaded that the Lord will use that to produce wonderful fruit in your life, and that will have a noticeable effect on our life together as a church body. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, as we have walked through this introduction, there's more than meets the eye. There are lessons here that we can draw as we reflect on you and what you've done for us, how you've brought about unity because of your work of redemption. We see here how you have sent your your spirit to work in us and to cause us to walk in your ways, and that produces gratitude in us as we observe that work in our lives and in the lives of others. We're reminded of the confidence that we can have that you will never leave us or forsake us, but that you are committed to our growth and sanctification, and ultimately, you will glorify us. And we see here how Paul reflects the kind of affection that you have for us, that even in our sin and our suffering, you you don't move away from us. You're not repulsed by us, but rather you are drawn to us because of your love and your desire to see us grow and change. May we cultivate these attitudes. May your spirit work in each of our hearts. Wherever we are weak, may you strengthen us. Even today and this week, May we consider how we can strike these notes in our lives and our relationships with others. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.